0: Well, if you have your Bible, the New Testament book of Jude, second to the last book of the Bible, is where we're at this morning, page 866 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some, some help to you. While you're turning there, if you have any questions about Christ, the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, I would count it a privilege to try to answer those questions for you when our time this morning is completed. The first service had a, just a different flavor to it than the second, only because the, of the testimony, So. Um, we took time in the first service, just to let you know, for to pray for all those people that um, were here in recent weeks, either outside of Christ, or it's just been a while since they've been to um, a church, and we took time to pray for them, ask God to help them and bless them, so just, just kind of wanted you to know that. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verses, verse 12. And I'm actually gonna, only going to read verses 12 and 13, and we're only going to get through the first two points on your worship folder. And the first of all, first one, hopefully, will be a bit briefer than the first service, but we'll see how that goes. But verse 12 is where we're at, and then we're going to pray, ask God for his help, of course, because we need it, and then we will um, set ourselves to the task of explaining these, these three verses, two verses, excuse me. These, these men, these people, as we said, because in the Greek it's, it's anthropos, these people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And Then just down to verse 16, these people are fault finders, are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now let's pray to our God and seek the help that we need. Father, um, what we know not, we pray that you would teach us what we are not. We pray that you would make us, and what we have not, we pray that you would give us, especially now. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you're new or it's been a while since you've attended, what we've been doing is working through this short letter of Jude week by week since early March of this year. And what I found personally is this book is very helpful. A good many of you have told me that it's been helpful and useful to you. And the rewards of paying attention to this book reminded me of a friend, since this is the graduation season. I have a friend who typically gives a book to someone he knows that is graduating and what he does is somewhere near the end of the book, he either pays, places a $50 or $100 bill near the end of the book. And the hope is, one, that they'll actually read the book. And two, if they read the book and get that far along, then they'll have a nice little gift at the end of the book. And, and that's kind of the way I feel towards Jude. I mean, it's easy to, skip, easy to skip Jude and get right to Revelation. But this letter of Jude is a wonderful gift to the church. It is, it is succinct. It is very, very pastoral in nature. In fact, I honestly didn't realize how pastoral it was until I actually started studying the book. It shines the light on these deceivers who, verse 3, if your Bible's open, who have secretly slipped into the church that Jude writes to, and they are making a horrible mess out of everything. So what I'd like to do is give a brief review, a very brief review, through these verse first we'll say first 11 verses to kind to kind of help us since it's been a while since we've been in Jude to kind of help us along the way uh, one of the things i learned this morning is the latin phrase which i'm not going to try to say to you but it means repetition is the mother of all learning Repetition is the mother of all learning, and so that's what we're going to do. And so it would be great if your Bible's open. You can see there in verse 1 that the writer's Jude, and we said this a few weeks ago, that of all the things that Jude wants us to know about him, and by the way, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, his, his mother being Mary, and his father Joseph, so of all the things that Jude writes us, wants us to know about him, the first thing he wants us to know is that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, that he's a slave of Jesus Christ. So of all the things that we can know about Jude, Jude Jude's family connection is either being covered or misdirected by the privileges of salvation. In other words, the main thing to Jude is that Jude wants us to know that he is a servant, or if you would, a slave of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking that if he had a Facebook, then his status would always be servant of Christ. And that should be a real lesson to us all. Of all the things we want other people to know about us, the first thing should be the best thing. And then in verse 1b, he gives us three things that are true of every Christian. And he writes purposely that every Christian is called, loved, and kept. So we're called. It's the work of God's free grace that before, he, before we loved him, um, he loved us before, before um, time or space or anything. So he loved us before he met us. He, we are loved by God the Father, not because we're lovable, but because he sent Christ to satisfy his justice on our sins, and we are kept, and this is the keeping power of God over all his beloved children, that God says, I will provide for you, I'll have pity for you, and protect you all the days of your life on this earth in such a way that that you'll be ushered safely into heaven. In other words, like the song that we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man will will ever pluck you from my hand, right? That's the keeping power of God in Christ, and you, we, we, you recall that we said the knowledge of being um, called, loved, and kept meant that this whole weight of our salvation is on what God has done in Jesus, and so that will keep us, since we are prone to wonder, that will keep us from distressing or bending or, or being fearfully led astray by angry, violent deceivers who are self-ruled and self-serving who, who may enter, to, enter, enter into the church, And so Jude tells the Christian, steady, steady, this is what happened to you at your salvation. You have a good God who's your wonderful father. He's a provider, he's a friend, and he's king. You were called by him, you were loved by him before this world began, and you are kept by his son. And so Jude just lays down this terrific main and plain principle that fits this context where these bad people enter the church. No one is getting away with anything. Let evil come and do what it does best against you. Well, let evil say what it will about you. You are and you will remain the beloved of God in Christ. So the Christian isn't like a circus animal, you know, constantly performing these religious, fantastic religious circus tricks to get in good with God or get more out of God or whatever they say, nor is the Christian like fearful child being bombarded by the threats and behavior of these bullies as in the case of the deceivers. No, we are well-kept children of the Most High God. And we are His because we're His, because we're in Christ. Then in verse 3, after Jude gives three marks, he gives three blessings, mercy, peace, and love be yours in an ever-increasing measure. And that's wonderfully thoughtful of him, isn't it? Exact opposite of what the deceivers would do. And then in verse 3, Jude lays down the one command in this whole letter. The one thing the Christian is supposed to do is contend for the gospel in that atmosphere. And so if you think about the time Jude was living in, it was a horrible world. And in some ways, far more worse than our own, though ours has its own troubles Jude said the way to contend with that is not to go political, is not to try to attend to financial or invade the educational system or all the things that many in popular Christianity tell us to do. He says, no, no, contend for the gospel. To contend for the gospel and then those things will work themselves out. And the point then that Jude is trying to make now then is he's saying the gospel is the answer because these deceivers, essentially, they're not converted. That's verse 4. And he gives us two um, characteristics of a false profession. Number one, if your Bible's open, you'll see it there. They change the grace of a God into a license. In other words, they say wrongly that grace means I can do whatever I like, when I like. So there's no need to repent because there's no commands to keep. And secondly, they deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. In other words, the deceivers say Jesus isn't king over their lives and over everything else. And so we find that these false Christians who are deceiving the the Christians in the church, they have a moral problem and they have a theological problem. Moral problem, I can live as I choose. Theological problem, Jesus is fine, but he's just not my king. And of course, they're deceivers. So how they kind of dwell in the church is they pretend like Jesus is their king. So they say the right things, but live in the wrong way. And time... And the fruit they bear, whether it be no fruit or horrible fruit, will bear this out in time. And so what Jude does then is to flesh out these deceivers. And he gives all these marks, beginning in verse 5, of the way these people operate to awaken a sleepy church. So verses 5 to 7, we see three examples. And Jude's a great pastor. He gives all these threes. There's all these sets of threes. Three blessings, three marks, and now three examples. And we're going to have three more examples, and then three more examples. Three examples of people who are living in unbelief because the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by by belief. These people have no belief, so their behavior is marked and scarred. The unbelieving Israelites, verse 5, who didn't believe that the Lord had rescued them, and they didn't believe the Lord, and so they went their own way, and the Old Testament story tells us that they never entered to the promised land. Over 600,000 plus uh, men never entered into the promised land. Why? Because of their unbelief. Then the unbelieving angels, verse 6, who did not believe the command of God. So these angels left their post in heaven, went down to earth, and they chose, quite frankly, to kiss anybody they wanted, and God said no. Their immorality was punished eternally and changed, and now these dark angels are awaiting their final judgment. And then, verse 7, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding suburbs there, they, most of you know the story. They didn't believe what God said about sexual immorality, and since they didn't believe what he said, they had no, no reason in their minds to repent, therefore they were destroyed in their unrepentance by fire. And then Jude, in verse 8, he gives three marks now that are, if you would, in his own time, these dreamers, in this context, they pollute their bodies, and so they get their theology, not from the Bible, but from their beds. That's the whole idea of dreaming. They dream up all these concoctions of what God is saying. It's all subjective. It all works out for themselves. God is telling me this, and God is saying that, and blah, 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 and at the, and the as all this goes on, Jesus isn't king, and the main and plain things that Jesus has taught us, they do not obey, and so... They are dark people, even though they want to shine, think they shine like lights. So instead of staying on course, instead of thinking things through, instead of thinking like a Christian, Jesus is king, they think, verse, verse uh, 9 there and 10, they think like an animal. And whatever pleases their carnal nature, they will do or they will go to. And the point in all this is that there is a way that the Christian life is to be lived. It is to be lived in grace as the work of grace And it is to make us more like Jesus in that grace until the very last day we are left living on this earth. And the whole while while we're doing that, we're not a Pharisee. We rely only on the finished work of Jesus Christ always for our standing with God. So it's not our personal performance that we rely on. It's the infinite righteousness and perfect performance of Jesus Christ that always is the basis for our standing with God. But these deceivers, they do nothing or think anything along those lines. And so Jude finishes off his example with verse 11, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and gives us a story of people who are self-willed and unrepentant. That's Cain. Cain says, I'm going to worship God any way I choose. And Balaam, God's given him all these gifts, and he says, no, I'm going to be a greedy man and ignore God. And then Korah, who rejects the God-given authority of Moses and Aaron, and decides to take 250 people with them and try to do this uh, overthrow of Moses and Aaron. And so they are destroyed, Korah and his 250 rebels. And so Jude gives us a picture of the deceivers whose response to the life of the church in their worship and their service and in their submission to those who lead them is essentially rebellion, anarchy, and intimidation. Now, that's our brief review. Now, then, we get to verse 12. And then, frankly, Jude gives us more marks. There's like 21 of these marks. We need to work through them in a sensible way. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. The second point now, a clear description beginning in verses 12. So let me just read verse 12 again. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. Now what that is, is part of the picture of what took place week by week in the early church. The early church had a meal. It was called an agape meal or a love feast. And the point was that this meal was to be a reflection of a couple of things. Number one, it was to be a reflection of that future day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where in heaven's great banquet table there is joy, there is unity, there is generosity, and therefore there is plenty, there is absolute purity, and Jesus Christ presides over the whole table. It's a picture of heaven. And separate from that meal is... In that meal was the Lord's Supper. So they would eat that meal and then they would take time to have the Lord's Supper or communion. And they would do it because Jesus commanded that they should do that. And so that was part of their regular meetings. And so when you went to the early church, week by week, this is what you could expect. A common meal. You could expect communion. You could expect worship and instruction. And you could expect prayer. We try to do that on some level here. However, this meal like we said, was not only a reflection of what will be in heaven. And by the way, this meal took place in the late afternoon, early evenings of a Sunday, okay? So this meal, in some cases, was essentially a meal for those in need. So there were poor people in the life of the church, and the church determined that they could feed them, that they should feed them, because Jesus said to feed them. And they met over this common meal to demonstrate their oneness in Jesus Christ. And this is where we need to pay particular ex- uh, attention. This meal represented their oneness in Christ to, ex- to express visibly to whoever was watching or participating. It showed what Jesus Christ had accomplished for them at the cross. And he tore down all the walls of human division and hostility. So they weren't an institution. They were the visible family of God on earth, and they enjoyed each other's company in an honest way over a common meal in Christ's name. And the provision for these meals came in at least three ways. Number one, it was much like we do the potluck style. Everyone brings a bit of something to share, or it was church funds that were used, so the leadership in the church determined that they should give money to this meal. Or, and to be honest with you, in, the, in my research, the vast majority of cases were the wealthy people in the church would provide the main provision out of the abundance that God had given them. In the other words, equality was to be their bent. These wealthy people were thinking theologically. 1 Corinthians 4, who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? From God. And if you did receive it from God, why did you boast or do you boast as though you did not? And in each case... The teachings of Jesus Christ were being spread out in the life of the church. So whether the church was giving um, their own meals or the church finances were financing the meal or the wealthy in the church were financing the meals, everything that Jesus taught, if you would, would have had its hand on that common meal. So let's just take a moment to think about what Jesus has said. He said, to whom much is given, much is required. So, if you're a wealthy person, or an intellectual person, or a physically strong person, or a skilled person, to whom much is given, wealth, intellect, power, and skill, much is required. Jesus said in Luke, when you have a party, invite, don't just invite the fancy people, invite the poor, and those with special needs. And Jesus said through Peter, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling or complaining. Jesus also said, don't be afraid to give for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out. It's a good investment, right? Never wear out for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In other words, what Jesus is saying, none of God's own will run out of the things that matter most and that will matter for eternity. So be generous. And of course, many of these people were. And because it's always a potential danger to have people in a kitchen or people serving, Jesus said through Paul, do everything, Philippians 2, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Then you will shine for Jesus' sake, if you would, like the stars in the sky as you hold out firmly the word of life. Hold out the word of life. Why are you so generous? Jesus said. Why are you so giving? Jesus said. Why can you give? Because Jesus promised. And so this whole meal then begins to make sense. And you can imagine as people did this how wonderful this was. Most of us love to eat, right? And it's wonderful to be generous in Christ's name. It's so Christian to be generous and share and to be kind and to be considerate and to make sure that no one feels bad at the table. Everyone is the child of the king of the table, no matter where they're from or what they look like. They all are welcome, and it's our pleasure to serve you. So sit down and eat. In fact, I was thinking this week that Jesus in heaven might have to say to his people, will someone sit down and eat? Why will Jesus have to say that? Because the Christian nature is to serve happily for our king. Why? Because our king said he did not come to be served, but our king said he came to serve. And remember that little story. Who, When you go to the table, who's the big shot at the table? The person sitting at the table or the person serving at the table? Well, those of you like me who a long time ago in the ancient world um, used to wait on tables... We know that the person sitting at the table is the greater one. Then Jesus said, "No, no, 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 no! You've got it all turned around. Actually, the one who is serving is the greater one, and the one who being served is the lesser." So you can imagine how terrific these meals were. There was plenty. There was companionship. There was, a, if you would, a festival environment. If those of you who know the Lord of the Ring movies or stories, this is you ready? This is the Hobbit meal. Right? A Hobbit meal. If you've ever seen the movie, the Hobbit meals are absolutely fantastic. There's bread and cheese and food and plenty and everybody's singing. Those cute little guys are dancing. It's absolutely wonderful. It's Easter Sunday every Sunday, right? So I'm going to tell you a personal story, which is going to make you even think less of me. But I'm going to tell you anyway. So this is true. I sent my brother a text to confirm it. This is true. So when we were kids in the summertime, my mother and dad would go to work and the kids would be home, and you know, there was like five, six, seven, eight of us, little creepy franzones running around the place. And so what we would do, a lot of times, is we would all eat lunch together. And my brother, I can't tell you his name, though I want to, but he might listen to the sermon. Um, so we, we would sing a song, no kidding. And the song, we would, sometimes we would put our arms around doing that, and the song is a horrible song, Drink drink, drink to the eyes. That bright as the stars when they're shining on me. And we would sit there and we would say that. We'd hold up our tea glasses. Drink, drink. You know, and we would have a great lunch. It was family. It was supposed to be that way. I was thinking this week when I was a kid, I promise you the vast majority of meals in my home growing up were like mini festivals, okay? I mean, we still had the meals where, you know, mom served tuna casserole and heads rolled, right? Go to bed. You're bad. Go. You're going to get spanked. Ah, We still had those meals, all right? But by and large, they were great events. They were great events. But when we read our Bibles and we consider sometimes our own family meals, we know that dinner A dinner table or a lunch table has the potential for ugly behavior. So, for example, in the church in Corinth, Paul had to write to them. There were people who were being greedy with the food. They were grabbing and gorging and drinking themselves into a stupor. So one goes hungry in the fellowship while the other gets drunk. And so some of the more pushy and grasping members of the church took advantage of those that were more timid in these things. And so Paul has to write to the church and basically says, guys, you're making a hash over that common meal. You're making a hash over that festivity. It's supposed to be beautiful. A common meal in the spirit of unconditional Christ-exalting love. It's supposed to be beautiful. No one should have a tummy ache when they're eating in the presence of Christ with Christ's people. And so Jude writes... These deceivers who, remember we said, Jesus isn't their king. So they see no need to follow all those commands that we work through. These deceivers, verse 12, Bible open, if your Bible is open, are blemishes at these love feasts. They're eating without the slightest qualm. And so what Jude is saying is that these deceivers' behavior is so out of place, so insensitive, so inconsiderate, having horrible manners, that they are a spot on that thing. They're a blemish on that beautiful a meal, in fact, verse twelve, the word that Jude chooses to use in the Greek is actually for for blemish is actually a nautical term. The term blemish is an old seafaring term that we refer to reefs that are covered by the sea so much so that you don 't see those ugly reefs that could do great damage to the boat until you get right up close to them so you 've got to be careful, and so what Jude says is that the true nature of these Deceivers is that they, the closer you get to them, which you should avoid, nevertheless, the closer you get to them, the closer you discover their true nature. Let me give you one example, Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. Do not eat the food of a stingy person. Do not crave their delicacies, for they are the kind of people that are always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, they say to you, but their heart is not with you. The Eugene Peterson's The Message translates that last little part. Their miserly serving will turn your stomach when you realize the meal is a sham. It's a sham because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so their conduct, these deceivers conduct, whether it was before the meal or during the meal or after the meal, is a blemish, an imperfection on this whole lovely idea of the meal being a meal in the presence of Christ where Christ presides over giving the church and giving the watching world a picture of what heaven is like and the great work of redemption that Jesus Christ where he makes all things new and every one one. No matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter how you know, hip you are or are not. So most of us have been around long enough. We know how these things work and where they go wrong. I mean, we just have to think about our own home sometimes, right? Who is doing the cooking? Who's doing the serving? Who's going to do the providing? Who's going to do the cleanup? And off you go right into that mad, sad world of, I always have to. I'm tired of doing. Let me feed. Let them feed themselves. I never get to sit down. This is so much. But here's the problem. We understand those things. We understand those needs to be taken care of. But the problem here is that this love feast is for Christ. It is a picture of his revealed will. Christ is here. It is for him. It's for his people. It's for the world to see. He is king and his kingdom. And this love feast is to be some kind of reflection of what will be happening in heaven. Well, what's happened? What will be happening in heaven? In heaven at that great banquet table, everybody's going to be good and clean and pure and generous and serve happily or be served happily. Right? Right? So again, the picture is what of the meal is what Christ has won for us. It's beautiful. I mean, as you think about it, let's just put ourselves in that setting and let's go to the table. If you ask the person next to you, "Hey, how did you get to the table?" the person next to you would have only one answer, and hopefully, it's the same answer that you'd have. Christ invited me to this table. Christ invited me. And there's no one at any Christian table that is so absolutely terrific and wonderful that they do not stand in need of the miracle of conversion. They do not arrive at the table by their own merit, they arrive at the table by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So that changes everything. They have a whole new mind and a whole new heart. They have an old whole new view on things because Jesus is King and Jesus is their Savior. And what's the reasonable response to such goodness? A common meal. In the setting of love. And of course, that phrase in the middle, verse 12, eating without the slightest qualm, what that means is essentially this these deceivers have this horrible thought internal and and wicked behavior external. While the wonderful meal is going on and Christ is present with them and Christ knows what he has taught about such things, they feast without fear. That's what it says they feast without fear. So they open up their mouths to this horrible occasion and spew out all kinds of ugly things about this wonderful occasion. And because verse 12 ends with shepherds, that last phrase, shepherds who feed only themselves. So it's a little S and it's not a big S. So these people, deceivers, have some kind of leadership function in the church. And so these ugly, deceiving leaders first thought when they approach the meal is, how does this meal affect me? And not, how will this meal appear to God? How will this meal glorify God? And of course, this is very, very contemporary, right? Fallen man indulges himself, and they look after themselves in such a way that they would drag others into their lines of thinking. That's why Jude said, shepherds. So I want you to think bad about this meal like I do. And instead of caring for the flock, they look only after themselves. And again, as shepherds, they would drag as many people as they could with them. This was a common meal in the spirit of love. And they would wreck it because they have no reference for what Christ has done. And they have no reference for what Christ has done. And because they have no reverence, and because they have no reference, they are as bold as animals. And they breach what a love feast should mean. And so it's no surprise then that Jude gives us these metaphors. These metaphors beginning at the end of verse 12 and 13. Because these, these metaphors simply say what these deceivers are saying by, by either word or by deed. I want you, the deceiver says, I want you to think about this meal like I do. Hence their ugly behavior. And so, verse 12, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. All right, big promises made. Here comes the clouds, but no promises actually delivered. One of my commentators on this say this, these deceivers bear rotten and withered fruit. They claim much, but what fruit do you find? Do you find holiness? No. Do you find evangel fire? No. Do you find true dying to self? No. Do you find converts? No. Do you find any obedience? No. Generosity towards men? No. Piety towards God? No. Mercy towards other people? No. No. In place of all this, you find brutishness, disobedience to authority, neglect, and abuse of the gospel, and contempt for what Christ has said and done, and contempt for those who are advancing in the gospel graces. So these deceivers are clouds without rain. They are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted twice dead. And again, just like the clouds, there's a picture on the outside like, yeah, these, these people may be helpful, but when the time comes, no fruit twice dead, right? No fruit and no root. So as you think about autumn trees, right in the season of their life when they should be bearing much fruit, there's nothing on the tree. So when the totality of their life is held up to the mirror of God's word and and there must be some kind of fruit, but there was plenty of outward show in these deceivers, but there was no inward glow and therefore all is barren. They bring no honor to God. They bring no help to others. They're doing fantastic, but there is no fruit on those dead autumn trees. In fact, Jude says twice dead, double dead, dead in their sins, and therefore, they're awaiting the second death at the judgment, the final irrevocable separation from God for all eternity. And so Jude writes, verse 13, a third metaphor from nature. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, So, so to their shame. So in the Bible, when you see the word sea, especially in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation, sea always is a metaphor for chaos, for danger, or a lack of self-control. So these deceivers' marks or lives are marked by, by their own personal interest and not Christ. And so they have no Christ-centered judgment. And so the instability that that brings to an individual. When an individual puts themselves at the center of everything, Jesus said that their life would be a wreck. It would be a wreck and time would bear that out. Jesus said, he did say, if you want to keep your life, then be prepared to lose it. But if you want to keep your life, lose it you want to keep your life, lose it. If you want to lose your life, that's right. Then try and keep it. Well, these deceivers tried to keep it. And of course, there's such a horrible mess as the sea tossing them here and tossing them there. The scum of the bottom of the sea essentially gets turned up by all that movement and it just eventually just kind of shows itself by the seashore. Isaiah 57, 21 and 22. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up, up mirror and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now just think with me for a moment. There is a restlessness that sets in to the person, whether it be the modern man or the modern woman without Christ, there is a restlessness that sets into people who reject Christ but but still pretend that they're in Christ. That they're like the sea. Every time something new comes, they feel like they need to run to it. There's never satisfaction with who they are in Jesus. Never satisfied with all that God has done in Christ. And whatever their religious tricks are, or their subjective notions are, they never feed the inner soul. They never feed. That's why they can never give glory to Christ. And so we need to pay attention to that third metaphor that Jude gives. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Then the final one, the wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Let me just close with this. This time is getting away from us, isn't it? So stars, stars were the GPS of the ancient world and particularly at night. And so these these deceivers would set their course on a wandering star. star. And it's a metaphor that Jude uses. These deceivers have no Christ-centered principles that they follow in every age and season of their life, but rather they follow a cocktail, if you would, of their own concoction. When seasons change, they change. When their minds change, they change, and they twist everything so that it works out for them. Hence, there is no regular course in their life that they can build on. And that's how we mature. We build on one level to the next. Maturity that takes place. So there's no fruit. There's no growing body of believers that they pour themselves into for their good. Able to see the good as the years go by in their life. There's essentially nobody. In other words, at the end of the day, they benefit no one. So whether they're clouds without rain or trees with no fruit and on and on, the point is this, they are aimless and they are pointless and they are fruitless and they merely hide in the local church. But, verse 13b, blackest darkness has been reserved forever for them. Listen to John Stott, one quick quote from me and we're done. Whereas these deceivers often go from strength to strength, gaining influence and popularity and growing in credibility, the position of faith takes is that God is God even over rebels. And no one, no one is getting away with anything. If God knows how to judge Cain and Korah and Balaam, he will judge all who oppose them, did you get that? No one is getting away with anything because God knows all things. He will judge, he will judge all these things in the time of his choosing, and his judgment will be right. Last thing this is this is my quote. I wrote this at the end of my practice time on Friday, and this is, I just wrote it down a pen, and i 'm just going to read it to you. Jude constructs a person, a deceiver, a deceiver if we had to use contemporary terms, who is unconverted but religious. They live a double life in the sense of no genuine repentance. They would fling themselves and their Christless mind on everything and everyone in Christ's church. They say no to Christ, no to his leaders, and so no to his word, but say yes to themselves and everything is working itself out to their own advantage, but no one really benefits from this, including them as well. They have no Christ-centered initiative. Therefore, they have no building process going on inside. And therefore, these deceivers are restless, hopeless, fault-finding, grumbling, who see only the bad because they're blinded by their lawless ways. And at the end of the day, they're blinded by the God of this age, the evil one. And God will stop them and God will judge them in God's due time. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we, we give glory to you this morning. We thank you for Jude's writing. We know it's difficult to, to listen to and difficult sometimes to, to consider in the life of a, of a healthy church, but the reality is we must. My mind goes back to, to C.S. Lewis's simple words. If we continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with us. And I do hope that we all will. So Father, guard us from these deceivers and guard ourselves from tracking down their evil ways. And so may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on all those in Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen.